Hi, and welcome to The Data Wranglers, a conversation about the latest trends in data engineering, hot takes, and insights on the data industry. I'm your host, Joe Hellerstein. I'm the co-founder of Trifecta and their chief strategy officer, and I'm also the Jim Gray Professor of Computer Science at UC Berkeley. And I'm your co-host, Jeffrey Hare. I'm a co-founder and chief experience officer at Trifecta and also a professor of computer science at the University of Washington, where I co-direct the Interactive Data Lab. Before we get into it with this week's guest, you know, Joe, I, I read that you got a little passionate on Twitter recently, and you shared that you have so many feels about the state of ML ops. And so would you care to share what that was all about? Yeah, so um, I was responding to a complaint by a, a well-known person on Twitter that everything in ML ops still seems hard. And they were asking, you know, why is that? So I had I had a lot of thoughts and uh, sort of ranted and raved for a while. But, you know, the theme was generally, you know, first of all, look, data engineering precedes your ability to be able to do machine learning. So, you know, you have to solve the problem of data engineering first uh, before you even really get to machine learning. And, and that's those are basically two big mountains to climb uh, and you have to climb them in order. The machine learning ops market's also really fragmented right now. And this person, I think, was frustrated about that. But, you know, that'll that'll coalesce. And I see a ton of progress. There's a lot of interesting offerings coming to market and we'll start to, you know, see that mature. So I actually feel like the view, you know, we haven't climbed to the top of these mountains, but the view is looking pretty good already. But I think, you know, the last thing, and this maybe we'll get into more conversation today, relates to things are hard in part because certain people like things to be hard. <laughs> and uh, Jeff, you and I, I think, you know, and our friends at the universities uh, bear some guilt here. You know, some people think that if you're going to teach data science or data engineering, you better teach some hard math and some hard programming problems that only a computer science major could possibly do. And, um, you know, I kind of see it the other way around, really. Like, if something is hard, that means that nobody's figured out an elegant, powerful way to make mm -hmm. it easy, right? So if we're doing our jobs, we're making things easier. Those are the real technological breakthroughs. So in some sense, the, this post is kind of a call to battle, right? Let's make this stuff easier. Um, so anyway, that was that's the short version of my rant. All right. Well, there's our psychological backgrounder for today's podcast. Great. <laughs> I'm glad that you got that off your chest, Joe. Yeah, well, and in fact, moving right along, thanks for jumping in. Super happy to welcome Stephen Hillian as our guest today on the Data Anglers podcast. Stephen's an old friend. Uh, we overlapped back at Greenplum, the MPP database uh, startup that was acquired by AMC and then Pivotal. Uh, Stephen was also a founder at Alpine Data and subsequently at TIPCO. He was uh, involved there in their data science efforts. He is now the head of data at astronomer.io, which is the company behind Apache Airflow. So we're going to be hearing a lot about that today. Stephen, thanks for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm really happy to be here. So I think it'd be great um, if you could tell us a little bit about what Astronomer is all about, maybe give us the context there. So my goal is to do data science with the data that is produced by Astronomer and Airflow as our users and as our customers use the data orchestration platform. But of course, the trick is Airflow is a data orchestration platform itself, so I should use that as I'm doing that data science, right? So in other words, imagine you've got a customer, the BBC is one of our customers, for example, and they're using Airflow to uh, analyze their data. Um, and in some cases, we have some access to the data, just like any company with a web presence, with an application, uh, can analyze that data to see whether the customers are happy using the product. I get to analyze that data and make sure that the customers are happy, uh, that they're not running into issues, and that we can use that to make our product better. So that's my role, like, just like any other data scientist. But with this twist, right, the rule is I have to use Airflow to do that work. 
And of course, I'm happy doing that. It's a great data orchestration platform. But by doing that, uh, we can actually feed information back to the product team to say, look, this was a little harder than it should be. Make it easier, right? Uh, this is what I expect a data orchestration platform to do for me. Uh, make it easier. So I like to say that we're, we're data scientists. We're like scientists in a lab that are using data, coming up with anecdotes uh, and hypotheses and using data to prove that. But we're also the rats in the lab because the product <laughs> managers are observing us directly and seeing what is it like to use Airflow as a data orchestration platform. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, yeah, I like to hear that. The rats are now studying themselves. It's very the, exciting. The rats are in control of the lab. <laughs> I wanted to hear, you know, what's the story behind Airflow? And so I know it's an open source workflow system, but maybe you can tell us about what people use it for. And, and in your mind, what's special about it? Yeah, I mean, it was created by the folks at Airbnb to manage their data pipelines. And as you can imagine, they have very complex streams of data that are flowing throughout the organization. And of course, that's not unusual. These days, most organizations of any size have very complex data flows. And you want to be able to make sure that those are coordinated across multiple teams and as efficiently and as cost-effectively as possible are getting to the place that they want to be. In other words, at the point of action, right? Ultimately, data needs to be in service of some sort of operational aspect of what your business is doing and creating value. And that can be really difficult as, you know, you folks know as, as well as anybody, manipulating data and operationalizing that and getting it to the point of action is, is a challenging thing. And Airflow is essentially the orchestrator for major data pipelines at major organizations around the world. Um, and um, pretty popular. It's now become uh, something that people download in their tens of thousands every single day. Um, it's an Apache project, uh, and Astronomer is the commercial backer behind that. And I like to think of it really like the conductor of an orchestra, right? The, the players in the orchestra are, are, of course, in some sense doing the important work. So whether it's uh, SQL getting executed on Snowflake or Spark getting executed in Databricks or Python getting executed in memory on smaller data sets or whether it's an API. There are many ways to interact with data. Um, were the conductor of that orchestra, if the players then are all those different platforms, were the conductor of that orchestra. And um, it's funny, in some ways, it's kind of... Um, uh, a quiet role that we play, right? You know, you've heard of Databricks and Snowflake. You've heard of Trifactor, right? You've heard of the things that manipulate those sources of data. You tend not to hear so much about the thing that is controlling all of that. But I say that's just a matter of time. Nobody knows who the lead violinist is of the Berlin Philharmonic necessarily, but you know Herbert von Karajan or you know Leonard Bernstein. So uh, I think Airflow is already popular, but it's it's uh, day in the sun is yet to come. Nice. I think you need a logo with like, a, you know, tails and a top hat. Or like that. <laughs> in, the, in this realm, you talked about um, being a data scientist, and now you're talking a little bit more about data engineering. And um, I read some blog posts recently. My friends like to trot these out. You know, somebody says it's you need two times as many data engineers as data scientists. And another blog post says five times. And <laughs> another blog post says 10 times. And then one blog post says, you know, um, all data scientists spend their time doing data engineering, so really the ratio is infinite. It's, it's, it's all data engineering. Anyway, you've been down this road, um, and I think you've talked about orchestration as kind of a meeting point for these personas. So tell us more about that. How is Airflow a meeting point for data engineering and data science? Yeah, um, well, first of all, it's exactly what you say, which is that, or what you're suggesting, which is that data scientists end up playing that data engineering role, sometimes literally, especially at smaller teams, 
right? This idea we're going to have this sharp division and your responsibility is to bring me the data and then I will do magic with it. It's just not the case, especially earlier in an organization's evolution. And I, I just think it's never the case. Data scientists always have to do some degree of data engineering. So there's that upstream aspect of what data scientists do, that they need well-curated, clean data sets in order to do their work. So that's one aspect of it. But also the data scientists themselves are constantly experimenting with models and statistical analyses and so on. And so that ability to be able to automate that work simply because sometimes it takes so long that you want to have it run every night and you don't want to have to monitor that, right? So forget about the upstream tasks or forget about being able to productionize your workflows through some data orchestration mechanism. Just your everyday work needs to be automated uh, and scheduled because it can just take so long. So I think there's sort of three elements of the way that data engineers, data scientists, and sort of MLOps, machine learning engineers, is sort of classically defined, sort of interact around that data pipeline orchestration. It's the upstream work, it's the experimentation, and then it's the operationalization of the final workflows, right? So data scientists kind of have to know this stuff just to get their jobs done. Uh, and sometimes it just happens by accident, and sometimes it's maybe something that's a little more formal. So... With my background, which tends to be more in human-computer interaction and visualization, for, for better or worse, I often tend to think of workflow as a back-end ops kind of function. And so I'm wondering, you know, how do folks bridge that gap between more front-end analytics tools and data IDEs? So everything from like your Jupyter notebooks, your R Markdown, to visual tools like Trifacta, and bridge that with operational workflows. Well, I think that's really challenging, frankly, mm -hmm. <laughs> because um, like Joe was saying, um, you know, one of the reasons why people complain about sort of the lack of progress in ML ops is because we make it more difficult. And one of the reasons why we make it more difficult is that there is just a plethora of different technologies. Mm -hmm. And so the need to bring those together becomes, I think, urgent, especially for data science teams, because otherwise everybody is just singing from the from a different hymnal to sort of extend the orchestral metaphor. I think there's more standardization around the sort of the libraries that people use. I think there is more standardization about ways to uh, to store and retrieve models, but it's still pretty messy. There's still a lot of things that you have to do. And if you just look at the distance between what the data scientist interacts with, or the data engineer for that matter, and operationalizing things, it's it's pretty great. Typically, the data scientist, she wants to work in a notebook, right? That is sort of the default interface for data scientists. Mm -hmm. And there's so much richness built into um, notebooks themselves and that interface and the way that it interacts with the data scientist. Uh, and, of course, Python beneath that in, in terms of the richness of the libraries. But that is not something that people typically can easily operationalize. I think organizations mm -hmm. like Netflix have, have tried to do this and arguably have done it quite well. But um, there is that distance still, as I see it, between the interfaces that the data scientists use, SQL worksheets and notebooks and so on, that are much more interactive and experimental versus what happens on the back end to operationalize things. So my answer to your question is I don't know what the answer is because I think we have to bridge that gap better. Right, right. I mean, and certainly this is something that, you know, we, we look at very carefully at Trifacta as well. So I'm, I'm wondering then, what, is there advice that you would give to the, the creators of visual tools, for example, that might allow them to better integrate with workflow systems such as Airflow? 
Yeah, well, I think the first thing is to to recognize that there are now standards for orchestration. Um, if you look at the Airflow world, and I think um, this this holds more generally, Python has sort of become uh, that standard, and around that there are ways of expressing DAGs and pipelines um, that are more declarative, uh, sort of JSON formats, YAML formats, and so on. Um, and so what I see repeatedly, uh, especially with users of Airflow, is that often uh, you will have the Python DAG expression as the interface uh, for data scientists and data engineers to use. And it's somewhat natural for them to use because it's Python after all. Mm -hmm. Uh, but then sometimes there's actually a layer built above that, which might be uh, some sort of declarative expression, say YAML, that allows you to say, here's my list of tasks, and I'm just going to copy-paste my SQL or my Spark SQL or my Python code into that format. And that's fairly easy to do, and sometimes you can build sort of mechanisms for doing that straight from your GitHub repository and so on. So there is a little bit of translation layer. Often I feel like that's left too much to our users and our customers than it is to uh, the, the orchestration framework itself, but that seems to be where people are headed. Python as sort of the natural interface for defining pipelines and maybe some sort of declarative layer around that. I'm kind of curious, actually, uh, Stephen, focusing on this front-end user, what, when do they know it's time to use a workflow system? Like they're sitting there in their notebooks and they're, you know, they've got experiment one dot IPNB and experiment two. And, and you know, they're, they're sort of, uh, they realize they want to automate and their first inclination is to write some code. When do they reach for, oh gosh, there's got to be a better solution? I, I think it happens on a, on a spectrum that there are times, and these tend to be smaller organizations, but but not let, let me not try to create the impression that this happens rarely and only with people who are really early on their journey. I think it's very common that the data scientists actually do use, do, do work in the notebooks and at some point kind of realize that this needs to be operationalized. And then it's a lot of copy paste. It's a lot of files sent via GitHub or God forbid via like a file transfer or email. And so there is some manual aspect to that process, which I think is obviously less than desirable because there's a lot of room for error there and it's just very inefficient. I think if you look at the more mature organizations, they have built frameworks around operational platforms uh, like Airflow, for example. That means that the data scientist is almost working with that platform from day one. Um, so if they're creating you know, if I'm creating our new standard way of invoking TensorFlow for building models, for example, um, we're not just going to allow you just to use willy-nilly any library with any version and any set of parameters. We're going to put some constraints around that. So there may be a library uh, of tasks or operators uh, that the machine learning engineering team, the ops team maybe, has created that the data scientists are strongly, and in some cases very strongly, encouraged to use. And that still allows me to work within the Python environment, but then the process of turning that into an operational workflow is a lot easier because I'm sort of using off-the-shelf uh, sort of tailored tasks that are ready for my orchestration framework. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, in these more mature organizations, I guess, um, that evolves over time. Um, but when you walk in as a data scientist, you sort of have these rails that you write on and, and you're sort of forced to comply. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And I think, um, again, it gets messy because you have so many different frameworks that you have to interact with. 
And so at some point I might be writing SQL. At another point I might be using Python, and then I'm using Spark, and it depends on the size of the data and the type of the data. And so consolidating that into one place becomes very challenging. Something like Airflow really helps, of course, because it's deliberately intended to be somewhat agnostic, right? I mean, for us, these are all just frameworks that we can call out to. But nevertheless, there is that gap between the authoring and experimentation um, uh, interface and the operational interfaces that, that needs to be bridged. Makes sense. I want to ask you about another gap that um, is sort of baked into your experience there, which is the open source to cloud hosted uh, leap that you know this project has taken and then also that your customers probably take. Um, bunch of really interesting open source infrastructure companies in data engineering. Um, Airflow is certainly one of the projects that comes up repeatedly when we talk to customers. How does open source figure into the lifecycle of your customers? Um, what does uh, Astronomer bring to the table and when do they come find you? Um, and how do you kind of see open source as a, as a market entry for, for companies in the data engineering space? So that's a bunch of questions. You can take them one at a time, maybe. Sure. Well, I think it's often a matter of scale um, so that you will start with open source airflow and there's a lot of value in just doing that. It's a very mature and flexible and comprehensive framework. Um, its ability to act as that conductor and be able to talk the language of each individual instrument, if you like, um, is, is a key aspect that I think makes it easy to get started with. If I'm trying to orchestrate complex pipelines that need to be able to talk to a whole host of different technologies, then Airflow is a pretty great way to get started because it already understands it's a polyglot in that sense. But then at a certain point, I have literally tens of thousands of tasks and DAGs running. Uh, those may not even be coordinated across different departments. There's the human aspect then of coordinating all of those things and setting standards and so on. And there's the computational aspect that it just becomes very expensive. Uh, so if you have individual airflow deployments all running somewhat independently of each other, then there's obviously uh, a way in which you're missing out on economies of scale. So typically the point at which you'd come and talk to us is when the coordination of both the human aspect of those pipelines and the computational aspects has become overwhelming, that you want some notion of central visibility into your data pipelines and centralized control of the compute resources. So another gap that comes up, uh, Stephen, uh, is this gap between open source and commercial hosted SaaS. And um, there's a lot of uh, successful offerings these days that have made that leap uh, in the data engineering space. Curious to hear your stories of what uh, you've learned and what um, sort of virtuous cycles you've been able to set up, uh, being able to observe be a rat in your own lab, so to speak, on this stuff. Yeah, that's right. So because we have this help cloud-hosted system, it's very easy for us to see what type of work people are doing across industries, across different sizes of organizations. And what's very clear is that the 80-20 rule applies. Uh, there are standard, I, I sometimes joke that it's load data from cloud storage, SQL, 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 Python, I'm done. <laughs> and um, there are obviously lots of intermediaries there in terms of how I'm creating that SQL or how I'm creating the Spark code, or how I'm creating my Python code. Uh, you've got tools like Trifactor, we've got tools like Databricks, uh, we've got uh, SQL interfaces allow you to generate the underlying code, but the end result tends to be 
something that is a common template that's repeated across organizations. So what my team can do is deliberately make sure that the type of work that we're doing is done using those tools so we can figure out whether it's painful or not. Um, Airflow is a platform that was created by and for data engineers. And so in some ways, I think they're very comfortable uh, within that framework. As data scientists, we're very impatient. Um, we have uh, the need to experiment and iterate quickly. Uh, we're not, uh, or at least we don't like to think of ourselves necessarily as being data engineers. Uh, and so we get impatient with anything that makes us do that work. And so what we've been able to do is to do our SQL, SQL, SQL Python and say, well, um, when did I have to do more work than I thought I had to do? And then we turn to the product team and say, make that not true, right? Shave off those rough edges. It gets, again, back to your original point, Joe, which is that I don't want to have to do anything more than what I expect to when I set, when I sit down and settle into that task. So when I want to uh, build a machine learning model, I know that I have to specify what the parameters are, where my data set is, uh, and where the results should get stored, and nothing else. But there's just a little too much boilerplate that I have to interact with. And so uh, we have said, look, look, this is literally the work that we did in order to get this machine learning pipeline into operation. And all of this I did not expect to do. How can you make that go away? And we're actually working on a set of new features right now that are coming out in the next few months that vastly reduce the amount of boilerplate that the data scientists have to write. Building on that, you know, what are your thoughts on the process of data cleaning and feature engineering, particularly as an iterative process? So you mentioned, you know, SQL, 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 Python. Um, if only it was always that smooth in a waterfall fashion. So thoughts on, yeah, iteration, particularly around cleaning and feature engineering. Well, let me just simply state that to me, this is the fun part of what the data scientist does. Mm -hmm. You know, this idea that we're creating these advanced sexy models that are using deep learning on massive data sets to come up with insights that no human being. Sure, maybe that's true from time to time, but it's mostly not the work of the data scientists uh, in two ways. First of all, often the data is not that big and you don't need a deep learning model. Uh, and secondly, the, the sexy part in my mind happens upstream from that. I can give you numerous examples where the real secret of a successful analytic, of a successful model, uh, a successful insight was the result of fine-tuned feature engineering and data cleansing that happened long before we ever hit the button to say, train the model, mm -hmm. right? So let me give an example of that. Um, just a couple of years ago, I was doing a lot of work in um, uh, semiconductor manufacturing where our clients were looking at the process of getting a wafer from the beginning of the factory to the end of the factory with as few errors as possible. And that's actually a very difficult an organic and messy problem to solve. Um, and so you instrument the factory. You have this essential, essentially a digital twin of what's going on in these semiconductor manufacturers. Um, and you are looking at thousands of measurements taking place at every minute of the process that goes through many weeks of, uh, of different process steps. So a lot of data to analyze with a single, in a sense, variable that says, was the wafer successful or not, or some degree of success, the number of the, the failure rate. Mm -hmm. So that's a hard problem to solve. Um, the very first thing you have to do is to deal with the messiness of the data. Uh, often the test fails to run, uh, or there is some problem with uh, the lens on the camera that is taking the, 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 the picture of the wafer, or the pressure sensor that is within this enormous... Uh, a piece of machinery that is very hot or is moving very quickly. 
Um, so that's a complex process that yields very messy data, and that has to be cleansed. Um, and then ultimately you want, because we're data scientists, we want a table of data with a well-defined set of variables. Mm -hmm. And getting from A to B there was, was very difficult. So there are many examples just within that one use case. But specifically, we had this radial data, because these wafers are circular in nature. Uh, and the, 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 the problems that are indicated by the test tend to be radial themselves. You, send, you see rings or you see blobs. Uh, occasionally, you'll see a scratch across the, the wafer. So how do you convert that into something that's uh, tabular in nature? Um, and also, how do you deal with missing values? Mm -hmm. The null value problem doesn't sound very interesting, but actually it's one of the most fascinating things that a data scientist has to deal with, is what do I do when the data is missing, right? Um, and in this case, converting radial data to a tabular format and filling in missing values by being essentially sort of contextually aware of what's going on on the rest of the disk mm. and also temporarily aware of what's going on in that machine before and after uh, involved ultimately, well, initially we were just taking means and standard deviations and so on uh, in sort of time series windows. Ultimately, we ended up creating Fourier series, um, essentially radial Fourier series, they're called Bessel functions, uh, to fill in the, the, in the gaps. Um, of course, the data scientists were involved in that. I'm not even sure where the data engineer and the data scientist hat was exchanged, right? I mean, that, that was all part of that same process. What it would do at the end, I think we ran a random forest. I don't even know. It wasn't that interesting. But the the way that we cleansed and manipulated that data was by far the most interesting aspect of that project. I agree with that 100%. But tie it back to Jeff's question on iteration for me. Yeah, well, you know, the very first thing you have to do is to figure out what is it that I'm intending to do as part of this project. In this case, it's very clear. We had to consume millions of input variables and get an accurate model out at the end. Um, so the first thing you have to do is uh, something that I think all data scientists should have as the, the, the default action at the beginning of the project, which is to create an entire end-to-end -end pipeline that gives a really crappy result. And if it doesn't give a crappy result, that's great, because now you can go on vacation and you're done, right? Uh, but generally, it's not going to give you the result that you want, but it creates a framework that allows you to iterate. I mean, it's very much sort of reminiscent of sort of agile methodology in software, right? You start off with something that's good enough, you put an acceptance or integration test around that, and then you know when you're done. Uh, and then what you do is you iterate on that end-to-end -end process. And so with the work that we did in the semiconductor world, um, we had for two years pipelines that were running in production uh, that allowed us to make predictions about the likely quality of, um, uh, of, of a wafer at the end of the manufacturing process. Um, but we completely changed the way that we were generating the input data. Uh, the models themselves actually remained fairly static over time, um, producing these statistics that, you know, hopefully were going up and up. So the data scientists were building their models and giving input to the data engineers to say, well, it's very clear that this feature, which we feel should be the most predictive when it comes to building our model, is just not giving us the signal that we want. How can we manipulate that to be more meaningful? In this case, essentially filling in these null values because so much of that data was missing. So I, th I think it's a question of creating that end-to-end -end pipeline, um, setting of a specific goal for when you want uh, to you know, essentially push it into production because the model is now accurate enough and then just iterate on that uh, that data prep phase. Um, 
And that was a two-year process for us. Um, and I actually think one of the reasons why it was a two-year process is because we didn't do what I said in the beginning, actually. We were <laughs> trying to do it all piecemeal, and we didn't have that end-to-end -end workflow. And we didn't really have a clear sense of what we wanted to be producing at the end and what the threshold was. And it meant that, you know, you've got the customer, which is the fab manager, who is waiting to get models of certain accuracy. Um, and you've got the data scientists who are trying as hard as possible uh, to get that result. Um, and unless you've got agreement at the beginning about what success is, then it means you can iterate forever. Um, and you obviously don't want to be in that situation. <laughs> yeah, thank you. That story really resonates for me, not only around the value of iteration and just about any project, you start picking at it and you're recalling, oh, actually, we had to iterate around this and this and this. Yeah. And then it also resonates with the second thing I always try and um, impart to my students, which is you really need to understand the data generative process behind the data you're trying to analyze, if you're gonna do any of this cleaning work. And I think this is true, certainly data scientists, but, but as you pointed out, absolutely for data engineers as well. I, I don't even understand how data scientists are comfortable doing their work if they're not part of that data generating yeah. process, right? I mean, where does this stuff come from? Yeah. It's called overfitting. It's like, I have a data set here. Let me make sure that it predicts what I want it to predict. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. You know, Joe, this reminds me of a project that you and I worked together on uh, some years ago, a tipping point, um, where we're working with with an organization in San Francisco to uh, come up with insights uh, from various aspects of running a city. Uh, tipping point was working with the city government in San Francisco, and one of those was looking at parking citations. And in that particular project, it was all about data cleanliness. There was no way that we would have had a result that we could give back to the government uh, if we hadn't gone through an exhaustive process of cleansing the data. In a sense, the models and statistics there were not that interesting. Uh, it was all about what we saw in the data and how we made that into something meaningful. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that was a cool project, nonprofit project. That was, that was a neat one, absolutely. Yeah, um, that was a perfect example, I think, where the data scientists ended up spending almost all of their time uh, manipulating the data. I mean, when you looked at... Um, parking data, the make of the vehicle, uh, the cost of the ticket, the type of violation uh, was all generated by um, uh, parking attendants and cops uh, who were handwriting these things in. Um, there was some degree of standardization, but all of that stuff needed to be to be cleansed before we could have any hope at uh, meaningful analysis. So Stephen and Joe, uh, building on the topic of projects you've done together in the past, I know back at Greenplum, you built a massively parallel SQL engine around Postgres. And then you also built machine learning libraries in SQL, for example, Apache Madlib, using all that traditional database API. Of course, then there was that whole big data wave amount around MapReduce and whatnot. And here we are something what, like 15 years later, and everyone's excited about SQL again. So What's going on? This is a question for both of you, I guess. Where Were we wandering in the wilderness there for a decade or so? Wow, what a great question. And it's something I've, uh, I've thought about a lot without coming to any conclusions, apart from you know, maybe that SQL is just a very natural language for the analyst. Um, I think it is not a coincidence that once you started with Hadoop and the primary language there was MapReduce, and you end up now with... Uh, most commonly used languages on these uh, Hadoop and Hadoop-related platforms being SQL, whether that's Hive or whether that's Spark SQL, that is predominantly 
where most of the work happens, certainly if you weight it by the number of tasks executed. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have evidence of this that we can get just by looking at airflow uh, operations. Um, I, I think it must simply be because SQL is a very natural language for looking at data. Yeah, um, you know, I think there's some things that came out of that whole um, revisit uh, phase that are useful that we're seeing in the SQL engines now. So, for instance, being able to run queries over files in the file system and parsing data out of the files directly rather than loading a database, right? I think that the big objection to these MPP databases was that they were expensive storage in some sense. You know, you had to format the data properly and then to pay to put your bytes in the database costs more than to pay to put your bytes in files. So, like, that seems like a bad deal. Right. I remember there was a Greenplum customer, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say who, major financial organization that chose Greenplum because they could load it real fast. So they would like leave all their data on cheap disks then they would load Greenplum, run some queries and then shut Greenplum back down. <laughs> so nowadays, it was really cool. They were way ahead of the curve. But nowadays, what you get with uh, most of the cloud hosted databases is if you're willing to pay a performance hit, you can leave your files in S3 or what have you and run your queries directly against them. So that was certainly... Um, that, that sort of disaggregation of the, the language from the storage um, was a benefit in the analytics space. In terms of the language, yeah, I kind of feel like um, programmers want to start over with a language that's more imperative, that looks more like a, a sequence of operations, like first do a map, then a do or do or reduce, you know, or first do a filter, then do a group by. So pandas looks like this, Spark looks like this, right? They're functional looking languages. But you start putting together multiple tables and doing joins and that, that pipeline breaks and you start to get a tree or a DAG. And um, then you're either doing DAG-shaped programming, which is actually not very natural at the command line, mm. or you get SQL from clause with many tables and then the tables have joined conditions between them. And, and so I think it is, it's a maturity thing um, to some degree that once you get past simple pipelines, you want a richer language. Uh, and then, of course, SQL's been taught for 40 years. So there's lots of things I don't like about SQL. There's lots of things that the guy who invented SQL, Don Chamberlain, doesn't like about SQL. He's designed at least two more languages since then um, that he likes better. Uh, but it is, it's a de facto standard. So uh, I think there's a lot to be said for that. But uh, there's so much, you know, what goes around comes around in this space. Uh, and, and lessons that get relearned are often learned better the second time. So let's hope that that's true here. But our podcast doesn't have to be data, data, data all the time. And we also like to ask about something of the unexpected that people might not know about you, Stephen. So, for example, what might be your, your go-to fun fact at parties? Oh, golly. Um, I think it's, I don't know if it's fun or slightly embarrassing, <laughs> but um, uh, I like to translate mathematical poetry from other languages. So mm. uh, this started out as an exercise when I was at Berkeley. Uh, my advisor, Hendrik Lenstra, and I, uh, we're sort of twiddling our thumbs at the end of semester, and I just finished my thesis. Um, and we were talking about Greek mathematicians, and Hendrik asked me if I knew of Archimedes' famous cattle problem. You can look it up. Uh, and it's a poem that he created that expresses a mathematical problem uh, that he then gave to some uh, mathematical experts, um, I think at the library at Alexandria. And uh, it turns out that the mathematical problem that it expresses is incredibly difficult to solve. It starts out with a set of linear equations that, you know, if you're pretty smart and you're not wrestling with Greek uh, numbers expressed as letters, uh, which kind of hobbled them, um, uh, then it's something that you can do. But then it introduces a number of quadratic 
conditions, essentially saying that these cattle on this island were gathered in a square or a triangle. So these essentially quadratic conditions um, that took, I think, something like 2,000 years to solve with the Pell equation, if you're familiar with that. Um, and now it actually requires like fairly sophisticated programming just to actually get the real answer because uh, the number of cows that are posed as the question at the end of the poem is larger than the number of atoms in the universe or something <laughs> like that. Anyway, the poem itself is very beautiful. It's, I think, about 40, 44 lines long. Uh, and so we decided to translate it. It had never been translated into rhyming metrical English. So we did that. It took about a year to do. Yeah. And then we discovered that there was actually a corpus of Greek mathematical poems. Uh, there's about 60 of them. And um, some of them are very trivial. You know, if Anne has three apples and Charlotte has twice as many of them uh, as she does and Bob gives her, you know, that sort of poem that you get in the back page of uh, newspapers in the 20th century. And some of them are a little bit more sophisticated. There's a very nice one that predicts or uh, creates a problem out of the age of Diophantus and was, um, at least anecdotally, was supposed to be put on his tomb. Hmm. So we decided we would translate all of these uh, into rhyming metrical English. And we actually just finished this uh, just a few months ago. It took us 25 years to do. He's going to shoot straight to the top of the bestseller list. I think so. I think so. Uh, Hendrik wants to send it to uh, the printers fairly soon. We'll see who picks it up. Um, uh, I'm not too optimistic. It's a little <laughs> bit obscure. But anyway, stay tuned. Watch, the, uh, Look out for the uh, book reviews coming out. That is some super fine geekery, I have to say. Mm -hmm. That is really like multidimensional geekery. <laughs> it's pretty weird. Um, and, you know, it's nevertheless a mathematical problem. Um, not just the poems themselves express mathematical problems, but taking Greek verse and trying to fit that into metrical English and make it rhyme, that's essentially a combinatorial problem. And we set ourselves the additional constraint. We really didn't want to introduce new words and we didn't want to take any words out. Hmm. So that's a set of constraints that are very difficult to satisfy. That's why I would say it took 25 years, maybe a lack of poetical talent as well, but <laughs> we did finally finish and uh, we're pretty happy with the result. Nice. Uh, I don't think GPT-3 can do that yet. <laughs> you just made it even nerdier somehow. <laughs> Oh, this was so fun, Stephen. Thank you so much for coming. Best of uh, luck to you folks at Astronomer. We're excited to be working with you and to watch you guys. Um, Airflow is certainly uh, taking off on its own. Uh, and, uh, it's great to know that there's an organization behind it to, to keep it whole. Well, Joe, Jeff, thanks. It's been a great pleasure, a real honor to chat to the Trifactor founders. I admire all the work you've done. Thanks for having me. If you have a question or topic you'd like us to tackle, you know, reach out to us at datawranglers at trifactor.com. And as always, be sure to review and subscribe to the Data Wranglers wherever you find your podcast. Um, and this podcast is brought to you by Trifacta, the data engineering cloud. And so on behalf of Joe Hellerstein and the whole team, I'd like to thank Stephen for joining us today and thank you all for listening. So I'm Jeff Hare, and we'll see you next time.